0: So so last week, just kind of in passing as an illustration of the sermon, I mentioned uh, a pretty significant change in my life regarding my employment. I, I do a lot of consulting with nonprofits, and I've been on a very long-term contract gig with a... Uh, a basic needs organization down in Littleton and, and uh, had chosen and recommended to the board a few weeks ago that we closed that organization. It was just it kind of done its time after 41 years and, and revenue had decreased greatly and it really didn't have a sustainable future. Um, and and that's what it is. I mean, that's a, a thing that kind of, you know, throws some of your life plans, uh, throws a wrench in them, but but it's, it's a life. It's what we do. It's what we deal with of changes and um, have some other contracts possibly on the way. Um, But one of the things that always comes up in that kind of circumstances is you get the question, well, what's next? And I had a couple on Sunday. People said, "So that was a sad story, but what's next? And, And the real answer is I don't know. It's what's next is a question we get a lot, and, and I don't know what's next. I don't know where I'll land. What I do know is, is the things I can try to control, which is how do I show up? How do I make myself known? How do I, I do well to network with people and then see what the next opportunities could be? But I can't determine literally what's next. I can just kind of control how I go about trying to get there. Uh, what's next is a common question that that we get. Uh, it, you know, school's just started for a lot of kids, right? Uh, and so they're looking at going through this school year, or maybe they're in their last year of high school, and everybody's already thinking about what's next, or or college, or or some other kind of education, some endeavor, some training you're doing. Uh, you'd like to know what's next, but we don't really have the the answers. All I all I do know is during this past couple of weeks and in kind of going through this transition, is is I've been reminded of the the command in Scripture that, that God gives, where He says. Uh, be holy as the Lord your God is holy and and I hear that phrase and He say be holy as God is holy and wow that that's a that's a tough statement to grasp because uh, there, there are other statements through in through scripture in, in Psalm 24 4 it says how how do I approach the Lord and the Lord God Almighty how do I approach God and it says with a clean hand and pure hearts so with with holiness and What does that, what does that look like? That's something that's, that's tough to wrestle through. I mean, God is God. And, and you think back, you know, several years ago with the what would Jesus do stuff that came out. The little book, right? And the bracelets. And, and we would say, I don't, I don't know what Jesus would do. I'm not God. I know what he's called me to do. And we'd wrestle through this. I can't do what Jesus did because I'm not Jesus. And, and we'd wrestle through that. What, what's next? What's holiness? What does it look like? Well, the passage tonight in the book of Mark, as we're working our way through the whole book, I think gives us two very different views of what holiness is. What does it mean to live a, a holy life? And we're going to jump right into the passage in Mark chapter 7. And usually I read the whole passage and then we kind of enter into that culture for a while and then, and then back up and say, what are the implications for us? And we're going to take a little different approach tonight where I'm going to stop a few times during the passage just to clarify some things, implications. Says the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And I want to stop right there for a bit. Uh, Because before we move on and understand how how holiness is viewed by a couple different parties here, we need to grasp a little better who the Pharisees were. And yeah, we've talked about that a little bit during this study of Mark. Uh, and I think right off the bat that the Pharisees have kind of gotten a bad rap in, in our culture, uh, in, in Christianity in particular. We just tend to look back and say the Pharisees, those are this bunch of legalistic guys who just really, you know, get, put a wrench in everybody's fun. Right, They were all about uh, trying to catch people doing things wrong. And and that's kind of how it played out sometimes. But the reality is the Pharisees uh, were not the power brokers in the community. They were not people of power. They were not people of status. They were lay people who who desperately and sincerely sincerely wanted to, to understand better what does it mean to follow God closely. What does it mean to, to live in obedience to what God has told us to be as his chosen people? And they they would look at situations such as uh, the rules that were given to the priesthood on, on what did it take to be able to, for instance, eat um, the food that had been offered as sacrifice to God, right? And the food that was left over was for the priest and his family to eat, but they had to go through some rituals and some cleansing and some purity exercises to be allowed to eat that. And that enabled them to be closer to God was the understanding. And so the Pharisees would say, well, if that's good enough for the priests, well, why don't we try to live that way too? And so why don't we start to take those same ideas and put it into everyday life? They very much had a desire to make holy living attainable in the everyday activities of life. And so what happened over time is that some of those practices, they started to say, well, God didn't just give the law about cleanliness and come before him with clean hands and pure heart, but he also wants us to do things in very certain ways. And by doing those things in a certain ways, we will be closer to God. That, that was how that developed. And so, as it said in here, all all the Jews, the Pharisees, practiced certain things. When they went to the marketplace and they were encountering people or things that would be deemed as ritually unclean, they had to go through procedures and they had very particular ways they washed hands before eating and very particular ways they would wash a pot and a kettle. And it got to the point that become even more and more restrictive where it was not just how do you wash the cup but where do you place it on the table and where does the napkin go and which hand do you use to drink the wine and which hand do you use to pour the oil. So, So it became more and more prescribed what you had to do. So when they, who saw themselves as kind of self-appointed guardians of keeping the religious community running smoothly, everybody doing things the same way, following the right rituals and the right procedures and the right ways to do it. Everybody does it the right way. Things will go well for us because that's how we are identified as the people of God. We do the right things in the right way at the right time. Therefore, people know we're God's people. It was a way of separating themselves, right? But in reality, these ideas of purity, and I remember washing of hands wasn't a hygiene issue, it was a purity issue, it was how do you come before God and you do things the right way, those things about purity also in some ways became a way to label. You, you label people that didn't do things the right way, and so they saw Jesus' disciples who came from the marketplace, and in just the prior passage we had, they had been interacting with people, and people were coming up and clamoring to get close to Jesus and reaching out to touch his clothes, Remember? And they were being healed. And so all this was going on. And so they were dirty. They were unclean. And so they needed to do the proper washing. But they didn't do it. And so the Pharisees pointed that out to Jesus. And basically says, what is wrong with you? We know that all of us practice these things the right way. Why aren't your disciples following the traditions of the elders? This wasn't just a simple, hey, I think we have a little issue here, Jesus. This was a public statement they made to Jesus in a culture that greatly valued reputation. So any self-respecting teacher, that teacher's pupils would do things the right way. They were really trying to shame Jesus in that moment you aren't the rabbi that people think you are. Heard about all the miraculous things he'd done, the, the teaching he'd done with authority, the casting out demons, the healing of people, all these amazing things, feeding multitudes with just a few little loaves of bread. They didn't care about that. It's like, yeah, that's something, but you know, your disciples washed their hands wrong. And they were shaming him. They were, they were trying to show in front of everybody that this guy was not what he was cracked up to be. It would be kind of like uh, Stapleton Fellowship Church is part of the, the denomination called Converge Rocky Mountain. If Paul Minton, who is the executive minister of Converge, showed up tonight, and he looks at me standing here as interim pastor, and say I'm the pastor of the church, and he'd say, Dale, what is with your people? Look, there are people wearing shorts in this room. There are flip-flops going on. We have baseball hats in church we're drinking coffee. We're sitting at tables. This is not the way to represent the people of God. Damn, you've got to do something about these people. That, that's a very minor example of what was going on. It was kind of a public shaming of Jesus because they weren't eating the right way. They weren't cleansing their hands the right way. Well, let's move on. Jesus in chapter 6 says, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their their teachings are but rules taught by men. See see what Jesus is doing here? They had said you follow the, the teachings of the elders. They're trying to give it some status. But Jesus is just saying, these are rules made by men. You've let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Let's, let's stop again because that could be a little confusing of a passage. Uh, This idea of Corban is a very extreme example that Jesus is bringing up. And and Corban was what we would call a a dedication formula, where if somebody owned an asset, in particular property, um, they could say and make an oath uh, that basically, or a contract that says, this property, this asset I have, this resource I have is dedicated to God. It's dedicated to use for God's work. All right, so, so that's a statement somebody could make about what they have. They could say, hey, I've been blessed with a lot of stuff. I'm devoting this to God. Now, now the commandments of scripture uh, was, was basically that a family had responsibility for their elderly parents. A son, in particular, is supposed to care for his parents in their old age, financially and otherwise. But, but what was going on is that there was the opportunity either for somebody to try to get around the law, which is... Yeah, I don't really want to help my parents, so I'm going to dedicate this to God. And all that really mattered was the intention. You didn't actually have to sell it and give the proceeds. It was just you had to make an oath saying, I am giving this to God. And then you could go and say, Mom and Dad, love to help you more, but I've made a pledge to God. And so what otherwise could have gone to you, can't. Now, Now, the other scenario would be that somebody sincerely is saying, I want to make this asset known and given to the work of God. And then as the parents get older and they say, man, I really need to help them, and they might sincerely want to, they cannot get back their promise. The Pharisees and the religious leaders wouldn't let them. You can't go back on that. You promised it to God. And so now you'd go and say, mom and dad, what otherwise I could have done, I can't do. This is devoted to God. And, and Jesus is looking these Pharisees in the face and saying, you guys are hypocrites, which literally means you're, you're play acting. You're, you're acting one way and saying something else. You're, you're doing something counter to who you really are, which is you have elevated your traditions, your little rules you've made up, and put those over the rules and the word of God. And he said, you do a lot of things like that. Jesus and the disciples, as I alluded to a bit ago, weren't just having a mild disagreement on a few points of doctrine. Jesus was in reality upending their entire theological system on how they understood the law and how they understood what it meant to be close to God. For them, closest to God meant doing the right external things. Finding the right activities to do in the right way and therefore saying we are close to God and you are not because you didn't do it the way we did it. And Jesus goes on to tell more what his view is. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And we've seen this as a practice, right? He teaches in parables. The disciples then asked for more clarity, right? Explain this to us. His response, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? It doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. That's a completely different understanding than the Pharisees had. In fact, if we were to try to summarize these, these two different understandings of holiness, and, and what do they think? The Pharisees saw holiness As a fence that they built around themselves. Or as an impenetrable wall. That would not only keep things away, but prevent them from going out and getting dirty. They they saw a fence around themselves as a protection. It was a defensive mechanism. Because their outcome, their whole approach to holiness was, how can I stay clean? Or how do I not get dirty? I can't go there because I might be defiled. I can't go there because they might touch me. I can't eat that because that's unclean. So, so i build a fence to protect myself from ever getting dirty. Jesus took a completely opposite view. Whereas it says at the beginning of this passage, the Pharisees, when they come from the marketplace, they, they make sure they wash before they eat. The reality is, is the Pharisees hardly ever went to the marketplace. Because by going there, they could be defiled. They're with the wrong kind of people. You might just bump up against somebody, and you don't even know what their problem is. And then you'd be defiled. Jesus' approach was, I have to be out. His life was lived in the marketplace. It was interacting with people. He, he, he raised a little girl from the dead. He, he cured a leper. He, he encountered and interacted with multitudes of demons. He, he went into Gentile territory. He did everything that's wrong, according to the Pharisees. He ate with the wrong people. But, but Jesus took the approach that holiness will radically transform everything it touches. It cannot be defiled. It, it is pure. Augustine has a great quote that says, Light cannot be polluted even if it passes through pollution because light is pure, which gives a whole different understanding of the, the command in, in the Sermon on the Mount of we're to be salt and light. It means we have to be out. We have to be interacting. We have to be tearing down the walls, not building walls. A theologian I love to read is a guy named um, Miloslav Wolf, and, and he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And really the premise of the book is it's a way to think about how do we, how do we engage all of life? How do we interact with the world around us? How do we see God? How do we see ourselves? How do we see reconciliation and forgiveness? How do we understand all of what that Jesus called us to do? And the and the, disciple, uh, the Pharisees would have been people who saw their life as exclusion. right? We build up these walls. We build up these rules that label people as either in or out. We're in because we do it the right way. You're out because you don't. Jesus' disciples were out because they didn't wash when they came from the marketplace. But, but, but these are the guys who are close to Jesus and learning true teaching about what the kingdom is and who the king is, that is Jesus. Uh, but they labeled them as outsiders. So they didn't do it right. And, and as they keep adding all these layers of rules that they thought brought them closer to God, they made that little fence smaller and smaller to so now it's just us versus them. It's exclusion. And you're welcome to join us inside this little gated, fenced-in area if you do the following things right, the following 12 steps, you can come in and then God will love you. Whereas Jesus said, I'm all about tearing down walls. I'm about embracing. And in that embrace, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, which cannot be defiled, will radically change everything it touches. They they, were... The Pharisees were trying to measure everything by the tasks they did and by the labels they could put forth and doing all the rules they made up to a T. But the Apostle Paul said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's how people will know who you are. John, the Apostle John in the book of First John says, how? and so we have to ask ourselves the question, are we people that are about exclusion or embrace? Are we afraid of the marketplace because we don't want to get dirty? Or as Jesus would put it, you want to be out in the world, in the community, embracing everyone you meet. Why? Because Jesus wants to change people through the embrace. Excluding builds walls. We don't ask people to change first and then maybe God will accept them. We embrace them with the love of Jesus. And in that moment, God can work in their life. And that's what frees that up so that they can live in righteousness and peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's such a completely different approach. And it's one that one way we could look and say, "Yeah, those Pharisees, they sure were dumb." And we could make a, a statement about how things would have been different if they viewed things differently, and, and they're so legalistic, but the reality is is our default position as people tends, tends to be towards being a Pharisee. I, I am. I'm as big a Pharisee as anybody's ever walked this earth. I look at people's lives around me and I see them choices there and make, you know, your life would be a lot better if you did things the way I do. And we kind of go there. But even if in the church, even within people who call on the name of Jesus as Lord, we have division. We have exclusivity. I mean, think about across history. How many things have happened among followers of Jesus that have led to war? Or certain factions of Christianity persecuting other people who know Jesus. Or we think about political agendas and how it tears people up that know Jesus. And it's happened over and over. Or maybe it's about practices we have. How we take communion. When and with what elements and how often and with what words spoken. How do we baptize people? Those things have ripped apart the witness of the church of Jesus Christ over history. Because we're exclusivists. We like it our way, and our way is right. Now, I'm not standing here saying we shouldn't have an absolutely biblically rooted theology and understanding to the best of our ability. We need to. We need to bank on that. But that shouldn't be something that stops us from embracing and loving people to Jesus. The Pharisees built a fence of exclusion. Jesus said we're tearing down fences. With the embrace. So, 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 what are the implications for us and how, how that plays out? How do we wrestle with that? It's kind of just this kind of big idea, right? This, this kind of vague thing out there. We need to be embracers instead of exclusionists. There's a new word, exclusionists. Or embracers. How do we do that? How do we go about doing that? Where do, we, where do we start? Well, there are four words that come from another author I really love. He's a New Testament professor. His name is Scott McKnight. And he has a book called Embracing Grace. And he says, as we, as we look out and strive to be embracers instead of exclusionists, we first need to look at the world around us. And we can do this as individuals, we can do this as families, we can do this as a church. So we, we look at the world around us and we, we look at the people in the world and then we listen for the groanings and the pain that we hear. And then we learn what we can do to enter into that and then we link to it. So, so we, we look, we listen, we learn and we link. If we think about that in our life every day, what do we look? What do we see? Do we have spiritual eyes to see? Do we have spiritual ears to hear the groanings that are going on around us? And how do we learn from that? What do we learn about people? Because if we learn something about people, it it helps us not exclude them. We look and we see the pain. We look at the struggle. We look at the groanings and and we enter in and say, how do we link to that? How do we embrace those people? And in so doing, the power of God changes them and changes us. It's actually a powerful four words, but it takes intentionality because once again, our default is to go back to the wall, to put out the barrier that doesn't just stop us from getting dirty. It just keeps us safe because I guarantee you if we choose as individuals and as a church to be people that say we are about embrace, it's going to get messy. Because embrace does not discriminate against any need or any person. It says you are somebody that is loved by Almighty God, and I want to show you who Jesus is, and I will embrace you in that no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, because I'm living in the righteousness of Jesus too, and I desperately need it. And I'll enter in that, and when you enter into that, it gets messy. and Pharisees don't like messy. We like offense, where the religious organization runs smoothly and everybody does things the right way in the right time in the right setup standard. And then we measure ourselves by that and say, if we did that, great, we're inside, you're outside. And Jesus says, if you truly know me and your life is about the righteousness and, and, and power and joy from the Holy Spirit, you cannot live that way. You have to be people who embrace and that aren't afraid of being contaminated by the world, because holiness cannot be contaminated. Instead, it will radically transform everything it touches. Let's pray.